Chapter Sixteen of Quicksand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Quicksand by Nella Larson. Chapter Sixteen. Glad though the Darrells may have been that their niece had had the chance of refusing the hand of Axel Olson, they were anything but glad that she had taken that chance. Very plainly they said so, and quite firmly they pointed out to her the advisability of retrieving the opportunity, if indeed such a thing were possible. But it wasn't, even had Helga been so inclined, for, they were to learn from the columns of Politiken, Axel Olsen had gone off suddenly to some queer place in the Balkans. To rest, the newspapers said. To get Frocken Crane out of his mind, the gossips said. Life in the dull menage went on, smoothly as before, but not so pleasantly. The combined disappointment and sense of guilt of the dolls and Helga colored everything. Though she had resolved not to think that they felt that she had, as it were, let them down, Helga knew that they did. They had not so much expected as hoped that she would bring down Olsen, and so secure the link between the merely fashionable set to which they belonged and the artistic one after which they hankered. It was, of course, true that there were others, plenty of them, but there was only one Olsen. And Helga, for some idiotic reason connected with race, had refused him. Certainly there was no use in thinking even of the others. If she had refused him, she would refuse any and all for the same reason. It was, it seemed, all-embracing. It isn't, Uncle Poole had tried to point out to her, as if there were hundreds of mulattoes here. That, I can understand, might make it a little different. But there's only you. You're unique here, don't you see? Besides, Olsen has money and enviable position. Nobody'd dare to say or even to think anything odd or unkind of you or him. Come now, Helga, it isn't this foolishness about race. Not here in Denmark. You've never spoken of it before. It can't be just that. You're too sensible. It must be something else. I wish you'd try to explain. You don't, perhaps, like Olsen? Helga had been silent, thinking what a severe wrench to Herr Dahl's ideas of decency was this conversation, for he had an almost fanatic regard for reticence, and a peculiar shrinking from what he looked upon as indecent exposure of the emotions. "'Just what is it, Helga?' he asked again, because the pause had grown awkward for him. "'I can't explain any better than I have,' she had begun tremulously. "'It's just something. Something deep down inside of me," and had turned away to hide a face convulsed by threatening tears. But that, Uncle Poole had remarked with a reasonableness that was wasted on the miserable girl before him, was nonsense, pure nonsense. With a shaking sigh and a frantic dab at her eyes, in which had come a despairing look, she had agreed that perhaps it was foolish, but she couldn't help it. "'Can't you—won't you understand, Uncle Poole?' she begged, with a pleading look at the kindly, worldly man who at that moment had been thinking that this strange, exotic niece of his wife's was indeed charming. He didn't blame Olsen for taking it rather hard. The thought passed. She was weeping, with no effort at restraint. Charming, yes, but insufficiently civilized, impulsive, imprudent, selfish. "'Try, Helga, to control yourself,' he had urged gently. He detested tears. If it distresses you so, we won't talk of it again. You, of course, must do as you yourself wish. Both your aunt and I want only that you should be happy. 
he had wanted to make an end of this fruitless, wet conversation. Helga had made another little dab at her face with the scrap of lace, and raised shining eyes to his face. She had said, with sincere regret, "'You've been marvellous to me, you and Aunt Katrina. Angelic. I don't want to seem ungrateful. I'd do anything for you, anything in the world but this.' Herr Dahl had shrugged. A little sardonically he had smiled. He had refrained from pointing out that this was the only thing she could do for them, the only thing that they had asked of her. He had been too glad to be through with the uncomfortable discussion. So life went on. Dinners, coffees, theatres, pictures, music, clothes. More dinners, coffees, theatres, clothes, music. And that nagging aching for America increased. Augmented by the uncomfortableness of Aunt Katrina's and Uncle Poole's disappointment with her, that tormenting nostalgia grew to an unbearable weight. As spring came on, with many gracious tokens of following summer, she found her thoughts straying with increasing frequency to Anne's letter, and to Harlem, its dirty streets, swollen now in the warmer weather, with dark, gay humanity. Until recently she had had no faintest wish ever to see America again. Now she began to welcome the thought of a return. Only a visit, of course. Just to see, to prove to herself that there was nothing there for her. To demonstrate the absurdity of even thinking that there could be. And to relieve the slight tension here. Maybe when she came back. Her definite decision to go was arrived at with almost bewildering suddenness. It was after a concert at which Dvorak's New World Symphony had been wonderfully rendered. Those wailing undertones of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot were too poignantly familiar. They struck into her longing heart and cut away her weakening defences. She knew at least what it was that had lurked formless and undesignated these many weeks in the back of her troubled mind. Incompleteness. I'm homesick. Not for America, but for Negroes. That's the trouble. For the first time Helga Crane felt sympathy rather than contempt and hatred for that father who so often and so angrily she had blamed for his desertion of her mother. She understood now his rejection, his repudiation of the formal calm her mother had represented. She understood his yearning, his intolerable need for the inexhaustible humour and the incessant hope of his own kind, his need for those things, not material, indigenous to all negro environments. She understood and could sympathize with his facile surrender to the irresistible ties of race, now that they dragged at her own heart. And as she attended parties, the theatre, the opera, and mingled with people on the streets, meeting only pale, serious faces when she longed for brown, laughing ones, she was able to forgive him. Also, it was as if in this understanding and forgiving she had come upon knowledge of almost sacred importance. Without demur, opposition, or recrimination, Herr and Fru Dahl accepted Helga's decision to go back to America. She had expected that they would be glad and relieved. It was agreeable to discover that she had done them less than justice. They were, in spite of their extreme worldliness, very fond of her, and would, as they declared, miss her greatly. And they did want her to come back to them, as they repeatedly insisted. Secretly they felt, as she did, that perhaps when she returned— so it was agreed upon that it was only for a brief visit, for your friend's wedding, and that she was to return in the early fall. The last day came, the last good-byes were said. Helga began to regret that she was leaving. 
Why couldn't she have two lives, or why couldn't she be satisfied in one place? Now that she was actually off she felt heavy at the heart. Already she looked back with infinite regret at the two years in the country which had given her so much, of pride, of happiness, of wealth, and of beauty. Bells rang, the gangplank was hoisted, the dark strip of water widened, the running figures of friends suddenly grown very dear grew smaller, blurred into a hole, and vanished. Tears rose in Helga Crane's eyes, fear in her heart. Goodbye, Denmark. Goodbye. Goodbye. End of chapter 16